when I speak about this stuff, they automatically say, oh, you're a liberal Democrat, you know, liberal, and um, want to get in like arguments about it. And, you know, I say, you know, it's really for me, it's not about politics. It's really about, let's talk about an issue, you know. Hello, the internet. You're listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist, a best-selling humorist, and I just shaved my face for the first time in weeks. Uh, Pandemics are weird, man. I have no reason to leave my house anymore, so I just forget that shaving exists. Um, Devolved into some sort of grizzled mountain man. I will not tell you how much flannel I'm wearing right now because it's embarrassing. More flannel than any human being ever should, I think. Um, Anyway, this episode I talked to someone named Lacey Cornelson. She's an academic out of Kansas, and we talked about how she had changed her mind about the concept of white privilege, Uh, thought it wasn't a thing, now believes it to be a thing. Um, I know white privilege is a loaded term for certain people of certain political persuasions. If you're one such person, I'm hoping you'll stick with the conversation um, because she used to be where you are, and it's important to at least understand why she changed her mind about it. So I'm going to go ahead and flip you over to the conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Lacey, welcome to the show. Hello, Luke. Lacey is a university employee. <laughs> we tried to tried to iron this out before we started recording. Why don't you Why don't you just uh, tell tell people what you do? Because I'm a little confused. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I work uh, at a university, and I'm a project director for a um, contract that the Center on Aging there has with the state. Um, with nursing homes across our state. Cool. So what is it uh, exactly you do then um, with the nursing homes? Well, we um, teach about person-centered care, which is a shift in how care is provided to elders in nursing homes. And so my job is to recruit and um, there's a pay for performance component to it. So there's a little extra motivation for nursing homes to get involved with it. And then uh, we provide education and evaluation of that. Um, we have about 200 nursing homes across the state involved with it. So my job is kind of to help influence others to change their minds about how they provide care. That's interesting. Yeah, um, my wife is a, a nurse of sorts, at least. Um, <laughs> so I'm, you know, vaguely familiar with um, some some of uh, some of the stuff. Um, what would you say is the the difference between person-centered care and whatever they're already doing? Yeah, so traditionally nursing homes were modeled after hospitals, but elders live in nursing homes for long periods of time. And so um, there's a lot of group uh, types of efficiencies with care rather than individualizing care. And so the system itself is set up in those nursing homes to undermine autonomy and focus heavily on clinical and safety orientation and uh, person-centered care is really looking at an individual approach and breaking down the systems to support staff to be able to provide individual care, getting up when somebody wants that supports their natural rhythm that they had at home versus having to conform to what's available at the nursing home. Hmm. That's really interesting. Would you say it's, um, is it a challenge to get people to, to make the shift on that at all or... Because I, I just feel like so many institutions have been built on, you know, some of the modern, so many of the institutions we have right now, and probably including nursing homes, have been built on kind of this assembly line factory <laughs> model of just get this task done, get this task done as efficiently as possible. And when you try to alter them, there's uh, considerable considerable resistance at the very least because people are just used to doing things one way and don't want to learn a new way. So do you run into a lot of that or... 
Yeah, absolutely. A lot of um, just people not realizing that what they're doing has that effect um, and that there can't be something else. And then just we're creatures of being in our comfort zone almost like this is, oh, this is what I'm good at. And if I have to change what I'm doing, I might not be good at that and it might not work so well. And so there's a lot of um, kind of walking people through that. And then just um, there's a lot of, you know, practical types of challenges like staff, staff turnover in those places and leadership capacity. And so growing leaders and um, keeping people motivated and keeping focused on skills and um, helping people develop those skills are also um, big barriers and challenges that we come in and help with. Cool. Yeah. Is it, um, would you say it's a uh, rewarding work though? Is it? Oh, absolutely. We've seen good, good. success, you know, from homes and um, we've seen kind of the, the aha moments, you know, the spark in people that gets the aha moments going and then seeing how it impacts residents and elders there. It's that's, hmm. that's the reward right there. Cool. Well, the real reason we're going to talk here <laughs> today is, um, uh, you were referred to me as a friend. Um, you were, what am I trying to say? You were referred to me by a friend <laughs> who, um, uh, said you, you, you would like to talk some about how you changed your mind about the existence of white privilege. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, maybe certain people are sick of hearing about white privilege at this point. <laughs> not not even necessarily that they deny it exists, just that they're sick of hearing about it. But um, I am interested in this conversation uh, just because it's a question that may, maybe often gets overlooked of uh, how do you how do you convince the fish to see the water they're swimming in, you know, to use the analogy Um um, how, 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 how does one who is white and has probably benefited from privilege come to acknowledge that it is a thing? Um, so why don't we start there? Um, you live in Kansas right now. Is that where you have always lived or is that? Yes, I live in Kansas, in rural Kansas, and I have moved about in this area, but always in rural Kansas. Whereabouts in Kansas is that? I'm curious. It's Oldsburg, Kansas. It's near Manhattan. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in uh, Nebraska, so I'm not too far from uh, from Kansas. Um, so yes, I am quite familiar with the lily white makeup of the Great Plains. Um, <laughs> there you go. So yeah, I mean, we. Uh, this is, I guess, where we're starting. Is that you? You know, you grew up in Kansas, and you were convinced that white privilege was not a thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about maybe how you arrived at that? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to say conclusion because that's not where you concluded, but <laughs> arrived at that uh, point of view, maybe. Well, you know, I grew up and everybody looked like me and everybody had a very similar background. I believed, you know, in the American dream that you work hard. Um, that means that you get good outcomes in your life. You know, you're prosperous and upstanding citizen. But, you know, I grew up fairly poor, not, you know, um, abject poverty, but um, fairly poor. My parents did hit middle income when I was probably more in junior high, middle school. But I didn't see myself as having privilege because, you know, I'd gone out, I had lived a pretty meager um, childhood. But, um, you know, I was surrounded by people that had a fairly similar story to me, you know, like we didn't have a whole lot, but um, we didn't go without that much either. So uh, just not having that much diversity growing up and not having traveled a whole, whole lot, although I traveled more than um, other people. Um, I did travel when I was in high school to the Appalachian Mountains for a trip and I saw real poverty there. And that's kind of the first time that I saw, wow, you know, I didn't think I had much, but this is a whole different thing. And we also volunteered at um, a homeless shelter in the inner city and kind of stayed in that area and 
interact with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And that's kind of the first time I said, okay, there's something different than what I grew up with out there. And maybe I should think about that. Um, yeah. And then of course I went to college and I actually went to college in an even more rural area. Although, you know, um, it was in a larger city than I came from. I come from a very small town, but a bunch of, you know, more white people, more rural situation, but I got exposed to some different classes and courses and people um, that didn't, you know, teach the same way that people did in my high school or middle school. And so I really started seeing things different. And then I did transfer to a larger university after that. And just um, that kind of opened my eyes even more, as well as, you know, taking classes with people uh, with more diversity in it and hearing people's stories. And that's where I started kind of, you know, really starting to reframe some of the things that were in my mind before. Um, I specifically remember a class um, taught by a professor who is a sociologist, and we read a book that's called The People's History of the United States, and it gave the Native American perspective of history, because a lot of our textbooks are written from the white male perspective. And that really kind of opened my eyes to thinking differently, too. Like, whoa, there's a different perspective from the same point in history. I had never even thought of that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting um, how easy it is, even even if you intellectually assent to this idea that, you know, like all people are created equal, all people have value. It's interesting how easy it is to ignore or even dismiss perspectives like of just huge swaths of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, encountering them uh, certainly, certainly helps. Um, one of the things I uh, ask my guests uh, on this show is, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the whole, di this, this dichotomy, <laughs> but I feel like I keep encountering people who do. So I need to ask the question, uh, which is, do you, um, do you think you believed what you believe for more quote unquote logical reasons or more quote unquote emotional reasons? Yeah. I, you know, that's a hard distinction. I would probably say it started emotional, um, in that, um, because, you know, you see other people and their stories don't fit with thought. And so like, whoa, okay. Um, and then probably, you know, just facing the logical perspective that this was all built from, you know, just facts and information that were fed to me that I just thought or saw as fact. And so logically, you know, it's not following what's in my brain. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Emotionally, I'm saying, whoa, something's not right. And logically, I'm saying, but the facts in my brain tell me this. Now what? <laughs> and then I guess the, I guess the next question, which again I, I try to ask all my guests, I'm really interested in um, the question of do we believe what we believe uh, for selfish reasons, or often for selfish reasons? Which is um, so. Would you say that maybe you held on to this uh, uh, view for selfish reasons, or uh, I probably so in the sense that you know if I believe something different, I'd have to believe something different than the people I love and care about, and they're smart people. You know, I love them. Um, I'm surrounded by people that I respect and care about, and they don't believe in my privilege. And sometimes, right now, even around me, people openly speak out about how white privilege isn't a thing, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or they're sick of hearing about it, or sure, or sure. I shouldn't apologize for who I am and how hard I've worked, kind of reality. Mm -hmm. And so, I think selfishly, you know, at first it's like I don't want to. Uh, go against people that I care about very much. Um, and then also, like, if I have a different view, I have to, you know, stand by that view. And I'm probably going to get argued with or um, tormented or labeled myself. And so kind of out of self-protection sort of thing, that's selfish, self-protection. Um, you know, you don't want to go against the grain or the the majority culture in your area. or Sure. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, one thing I keep hitting on as I talk to people um, is that they seem to be 
it's it's fairly common to change your mind as far as your community will let you change your mind. Um, but beyond that is is pretty rare. And maybe that maybe that's obvious. I don't know. Um, it's interesting to me though because so much of um, in American culture, we like to think of people as these autonomous individuals, you know. Um, but so much of us is formed and shaped, whether we want it to be or not, by the environment we uh, find ourselves in. So maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I, I want to maybe ask you this um, because it sounds to me <laughs> uh, you talk about you talk you talk about buying into this American dream idea of you know if you work hard you can make something of yourself and it does sound to me like you've sort of done that <laughs> if you're uh, you said you when you were born your folks were relatively poor I don't know what your folks did for a living. Um, but you said they managed to work themselves up to middle class ish. And it sounds like you now are a member of, you know, the fairly well-paid consultant professional class. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's not fair. Yeah. If, if, if I'm wrong, correct me. Um, yeah. but, uh, wouldn't, I mean, to an extent, at least, wouldn't that kind of confirm this uh, idea of, you know, work your way up to the top? Yeah. I mean, for me, um, it has sort of worked like that. You know, I will have to say my parents, um, they were farmers in the eighties and the recession hit then in the, yeah, that, so that was a lousy time to be a farmer, <laughs> right? Like the worst Man. time, yeah, the yeah. Worst time to be farmers. And so that's why we started out really poor. Um, but the, the land and everything stayed in our family. So my parents, you know, had to bail out. They were really poor. Um, the land still was able to stay in our family. And, you know, I think that's a part of the bigger story that that's our white privilege. You know, we own, like as a family and as generations past, we own land. And that's an important piece of white privilege. That I don't think I understood then. Um, but my parents did work their tails off. My dad worked several jobs. Um, he was more of a laborer his own business as well as then worked for insurance. And then my mom is a professional. She um, oversees a nursing home now um, and has for a long, long time. So she made a pretty good income, but it wasn't right away. I mean, she started as a secretary, she did social work, and then she ended up working into that more professional, um, higher paid position. And they both worked really hard. And, uh, you know, then I went to college and got a degree and, um, then got a master's degree. And so, yeah, and my husband, he, um, yeah, his story's a little different. He, he's in sales now, but he has a chronic condition. And so we've had our fair share of, of hard hardship, but, um, yeah, for the most part, I would say we lived the, we are living the dream, you know, that middle-class lifestyle. Yeah. Um, the land ownership thing is a really important point. I think that, you know, the, for the most part, the best way to build wealth is to own real estate. And until very recently, um, a solid chunk of Americans were shut out of that, mm -hmm. um, whether, whether by, uh, by law or by, um, uh, de facto, um, by de facto, that totally makes sense. Good job, Luke. Um, <laughs> but we, um, I'm looking over your looking over your answers here, and it looks like what first uh, started to um, really change your mind about this was having a, a biracial friend in high school. So why don't you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, I um, came to know Christ in middle school fairly early, and um, probably came out of um, I had hardships at home as well, and um, it, you know, I could kind of go either direction. I could just be mad at the world or thank goodness I was saved by the love of Christ. And we poured into that, recognizing that that's, you know, where I could truly see love was through that relationship with Christ. And thank goodness, you know, <laughs> thank the Lord. Um, and through that, like I was really looking for that deep relationship with Christ. And so we had a girl move into our school and she was biracial. And when you're talking a rural school of less than 100 students in the middle school um, and high school setting. Um, so our class had about 30 students in it. All of us, you know, we didn't, we were all from that area pretty much. And so there was a lot of talk 
came in like, oh my gosh, she's from the city. She looks different. She acts different. She's, you know, she's weird, that kind of thing. And I just remember very distinctly God saying, oh, um, be friends with her, you know, huh. thinking me, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm really shy. Um, and yeah. I was pretty awkward, just shy. Kind of person. And I'm like, you know, I'm not one of those people that just goes up to somebody and says, Hey, be my friend, you know, <laughs> or Hey, yeah, sure. So, um, but over time, um, we did, we became really, really close friends and her life was very different than mine. She was being raised by her grandparents, actually. Um, her mom left, um, she had an older brother and it was kind of through that experience and just seeing life through somebody else's eyes. Um, that I think that's where my heart started softening too. It's like, not everybody's like us. You know? <laughs> yeah, sure. Stories like mine, you know, not everybody's stories like my friends I've always had, you, you know. What would you say in particular struck you about how her life was different? You know, her mom just up and left her, her brother. And um, I just couldn't imagine, you know, in my family, everybody was married and, um, you know, I grew up in a church and there was kind of a safety net in that um, or a cushion from the potential, uh, I don't know, reality of the world. So for somebody to even be divorced was unique, but then to have a mom who, you know, left and, you know, was probably a drug addict, um, you know, didn't really even know who her father was. That was very unusual for me at that time. Like, what? That even happens, you know? And um, so seeing that and then just seeing that her grandparents were raising her um, was different and um, just trying to wrap my head around that whole thing. But then I think the fact that she um, hated herself so much for things that her parents did, you know, and um, just the, the decisions she had to make and the struggles that she had were very different from my own because of just the life circumstances that were surrounding her, you know? I feel like I know what the, um, you know, the, <laughs> I don't know if I want to say the racist answer to this is, but maybe the, um, let's say the, the more conservative response to this is going to be, um, and I just lost every single conservative listener I have. Um, <laughs> but I feel like I feel like if I if I were um, if I, if I if I were the white privilege is a lie type and wanted to dig my heels in on this, I would say, well, those are just individuals making their own choices. It's got nothing to do with race, right? Her her dad, her mom didn't leave her because she was Mexican. Her mom left her because she chose to leave her. Um, and what, what what's the response you would uh, give that? Well. Yeah, her story <laughs> individual, but it helped me to see that for me, that was an individual story that compelled me to look deeper. Sure. The piece that's deeper and that's such a systemic issue is it's bigger than that. It's that, you know, you look into um, the piece of like property and things like that. There's a whole group of people that don't have access to the ability to get a loan because of the color of their skin. And historically, that's not as true now. There's deeper guises to that now, but you know, you didn't have as many assets if you came from, say, you immigrated or you came from um, slavery. You know, you didn't have the assets or clout to get a loan in the color of your skin was probably even another reason you just couldn't get a loan. Right. In some areas, literally, there was a line where black people could not live, you know, and the property value um, from one side of that line to the other was very different. So if you think about the American dream, how on earth is it possible then to get um to advance if you can't have access to things like getting a loan to start a business, you know, um, or to have a safe place to live. And then, you know, over time that equates to people doing things that maybe are legal so that they can, um, can have um, some access to things to feed their family and things like that. And then over 
time that degrades um, degrades the family eventually to the point that, you know, we have the situation we have today. You have people who've broken, broken their way out of that. And then you have people who are stuck in that cycle, you know. And so um, for my friend, she was a result of the cycle, you know the dysfunction that comes out of not having access to a safe place for family to live, the ability to make a living on the up and up and up, um, that sort of thing. If that makes mm. sense. Sure. Yeah. So you met this friend in middle school, you said, or high school, you said high school, middle right? school. actually. Middle, okay. Um, and then you get, you get to, to high school, to college. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about your, your high school and college years and, uh, what sort of experiences there helped to open your mind a little bit or? Yeah. You know, I would say high school was probably, you know, status quo, more of the same. There really wasn't that much diversity there, except, you know, I did go on that mission trip. Like I talked about high school and got exposed to, um, you know, just differences in, in lifestyle, just what real poverty is and um, seeing different places and people. So I think that was another opening of it. Um, then college, it was really about, you know, educate, edu- educating myself, um, not hearing the same narrative over and over and over, you know. Um, and, you know, for me, it was not being mad at the people that I, you know, live, live around or recognize or thinking, oh, these people are telling me something wrong because the people I love back home don't think this way. It was really just, wow, there are different perspectives in the world. And this is one perspective. And here's another perspective, you know, so it's an and it's like, and this exists too. And so how do I, you know, um, think about this now or how how do I fit where do I fit and where what's my perspective now and what's what narrative am I going to uh, live by or create for myself um of course where's God leading me <laughs> yeah yeah I mean you, you if I get back up just a, yeah. a little bit here you said being mad at the people yeah um are you you talking about being mad at at non-white people um is that, is that what you're saying? Or were you harbor? Do you feel like you were harboring a lot of anger? Um, you know, I think it was more being mad at my own family, being mad at the people I grew up with. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, because I think when you realize that, um, that there's so much more out there <laughs> for me, it's like, why didn't anybody tell me this before? Didn't you? this or why do you how can you even still think this way uh, when there's so much information out there that would tell us something different you know me that's what it was is like I'm how can I not be mad at people for I don't know I guess in one way of saying it is for ignorance Um, and uh, we just don't know what we don't know sometimes and it's like the fish not being aware that they're swimming in water. <laughs> um, how can we be so blind to what's there? Um, and and I think more on a spiritual level, I think the other piece is um, how can you use the word of God and use your religion to support something that is so blatantly um, hurtful to a group of people, you know? Yeah. I mean, the religion thing is, is interesting because you talked about, you know, coming, coming to Christ in junior high and in middle school as being instrumental in, um, making you, uh, change your mind about this. Um, whereas at least in the public perception now, (laughs) Midwestern, uh, Protestant Christianity is almost synonymous with racism. Um, so I don't know. I, can we talk about that a little bit? Were you um were you familiar at all with Christianity prior to middle school, or, or what what exactly was that religious conversion? I gr- I grew up in the church. I was baptized in the church. I started out Methodist until um and in my adult life, and um, I guess uh you know it's one thing to be religious and go to church, and it's another to have a relationship with God. 
and our relationship with Christ. So for me in middle school, I flipped a switch from just being religious, <laughs> you know, just going to church and doing what my parents told me to and trying to be trying to be good, <clears throat> really having a relationship with Christ and um, listening to the Holy Spirit, which um, God put in me different. It's a very different. <laughs> and so when you read and learn it's from a different perspective when you're really seeking a relationship with Jesus. And so for me in middle school, that's what happened. It's really about my own journey and my own relationship with Christ rather than just my parents telling me to go to church and doing the right thing, you know? So how would, how would you, um, and maybe you've already answered this, um, but how, how would you say having a relationship with Christ changed the way you thought about the people around you? Um, you know, I think that I realized at that point for me that um, in our church life kind of uh, forced this as well is that, you know, adults don't always know what's best or always doing what's best. So not necessarily to just question authority blanketly, but to, to know that, you know, people are fallible. We're sinners, you know? So whether that's, you know, my peers or adults or whatever, it's really trying to look through, look past the world and look to Christ. And the world tells us lots of things um, that we sort of take as fact when, in, you know, that's the world's view and it's not the kingdom view or God's, um, God's perspective. Um, and so when you look at the Bible, so I think even some of us read the Bible from the view of our culture, from the view of our world, when we need to be looking at it from the eyes of, um, with Christ's perspective, you know? So I think I started to develop that then. I certainly didn't understand it to the level I do now. Um, but I think then I began trying to not look at the, the world for surface value that I was trying to, you know, listen to the Holy Spirit as I'm viewing the world, you know? So how would you say it um, first, it, it felt when you first started to question your previous beliefs? <laughs> um, you know, weird, like scary, um, excited, because I don't know, I didn't, I talked to a lot of people and most people didn't have the best middle school years. It's a very awkward time in life. <laughs> that was very true for me. Middle school was horrible. Definitely being able to have a friend, you know, the friend that, that I made um, who was biracial, you know, it helped to have her there and making a close friend in that way. But also, you know, it was just a horrible time. People are mean to each other. Everybody's trying to figure out who they are. I included, you know. And so um, there's that piece of it. Now, remind me what your central question was here. The question was how did how did it feel uh, to question? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, um, I think in a time in your life when everything's all like anyway, it was sort of exciting at that time because it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be different. I'm gonna be my own person kind of thing. And when you really wrap your mind about what does this mean for you, you know, then it's like scary because it's like if I really don't believe. You, you know, or I really understand that white privilege is a thing and that what people are saying harbors racism, I can't just be silent or I can't just go ho-hum about my business, you know, um, in my relationship with people all around me. I, um, I can't. I can't not speak up about this or I can't use the same language or... Um, carry forward the same narrative that others are carrying because I don't believe that anymore. And that's scary. Now what? Now where do I fit? Because in this culture in rural Midwest, I mean, that is the norm. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily people are racist. I'm just saying that the normal narrative that we hear, that's, um, it's certainly not one that uh, thinks about white privilege. So one of the questions I try to ask all my guests is, um, 
Do you have a coming out story? Did you have a time when you um, <laughs> communicated to friends and well-wishers that you'd been wrong, that they maybe that they were wrong? <laughs> well, it's probably not one time, but many times. And, um, you know, I think within my family, there's always been a little bit of freedom to uh, speak my mind. And I'm grateful for that. That's good, yeah. Yeah. But even with my own family, I think it was just over time. Lacey's the opinionated one, you know, <laughs> going through a phase kind of thing. <laughs> so that, but they always recognized that I didn't just go with the flow kind of thing, go with the dominant, what the crowd thought. So I wasn't extremely outspoken to everyone, um, but people did recognize I didn't just go with what the popular, you know, what the popular thing of the moment was. And so, um, especially in late middle school and high school, that was true. Um, and then as far, so I think my friends and people within my, my school kind of knew that, um, and my family didn't necessarily know that, but I will tell you, I tried to speak my mind to my grandpa one time and he's very much, you know, farmer, white privilege, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I tried to speak my mind about gender roles one time. I think I was maybe 12 or 13. Oh, wow. <laughs> my cousins and I, my cousins were boys, three boys, a little bit older than I am. Um, and then my sister and I are girls and we'd go out with my grandpa and help um, haul hay and run the grain trucks and, you know, cut cane, that sort of thing. And then we'd come home and we'd have a meal my grandma prepared. Then afterwards, all the guys would retire to the other room. And my grandpa expected my sister and I to help clean up after supper and dishes and everything. <laughs> I met him <laughs> once. I'm like, I just don't really understand why my cousins don't have to do this too. Why you know, <laughs> cousins don't do this? And he gave me a look and <laughs> said, you get in there and do the dishes. <laughs> about the boys and I was like okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I don't think that necessarily coming out to parents was necessarily very popular um but uh so I kind of tried to butt heads with him on a couple of different occasions about various issues but he was always right so <laughs> but I think for my friends and stuff when I speak about this stuff, they automatically say, oh, you're a liberal Democrat, you know, liberal, and um, want to get in, like, arguments about it. And, you know, I say, you know, it's really, for me, it's not about politics. It's really about let's talk about an issue, you know, not necessarily a political issue, an important, you know, human issue. <laughs> and I don't. And I typically don't bring it up. It's more that I will try to uh, speak into uh, a subject because it's brought up in a very, uh, you know, like, oh, these damn people who mooching off the system or whatever. <laughs> That's kind of how it's brought up. And I might speak into that issue and offer a different perspective of that. And then it's like, oh, you're just a liberal Democrat like on to the next subject and I'm like no whoa 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 wait that's not at all why I said that it's like just have you considered a different thought about that and nobody wants to really talk about it anymore it's just let's complain about it with the same old story kind of thing um I did in our own church this year when um George Floyd stuff came out there was just so much um I will just say negative discussion about it. You know, when you talk, when you cross over into the church segment of it, I get a lot more passionate about it because um, it's different. You know, you're talking to other Christians. So um, I did uh, work with um, one of the pastors there who's your friend, and we were able to do a piece with the board. Uh, of the church and we got into some real heated discussions there. And that was kind of like my coming out there because before I hadn't been quite as outspoken about it. 
but I did become outspoken about it and um, then provided some, oh, you know, I use my talents that I have from work about changing people's mind and influencing. And, and with that, it's really, it's not about telling people you're wrong and I'm right. It's about helping people discover their aha moments. So really just offering up a different perspective and helping people spend time with the Holy Spirit on that subject. And that's what we did. And it, you know, ultimately it really turned out well, but man, when we offered up the idea initially, it meant a lot of resistance, a lot, very threatened people. But people did come around on it? They didn't come around. I wouldn't say that, you know, they've changed their mind necessarily, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. but definitely um, more open hearts to listen than there ever have been before. All right. Well, how would you say your life has changed since your beliefs changed? Um, well, <laughs> personally, I think I'm enriched because I've been able to have different friendships with people um, that I probably wouldn't have been able to have. I do work at a university, so I am much more surrounded by diversity than I ever have been. And I do work with students who come from a variety of different backgrounds. And so I think that I can um, see things differently because of this, you know, because I've changed my mind. I'm able to see um, people's maybe even cries for help a little differently than, than others. And so even I was working with a student who um, lost her internship because of COVID. Uh, she was interning in a nursing home, and um, when COVID happened, they nursing homes here in Kansas anyway, um, they didn't they didn't allow people who were not essential to the function of the operation to work on sites. They had to work off site, and for her, that meant that she lost her internship hours. And uh, she is biracial; she's a half black, and. Um, as far as I can surmise, I don't know exactly the makeup, but I know she has, she has a, she's half black. And um, there's just so much going on in her life. She's lost the internship. And then in the midst of all of that, the George Floyd incident happened and she has a biracial son. And I think it can just hit really hard. And so I just reached out to her and said, you know, I just wanted to tell you that I'm thinking about you. And I know this must be a really hard time. Um, and if you just need to talk or just need to vent, you know, there's resources on campus, but I'm here too, you know, and she immediately said, this is just the most thoughtful thing that I've anybody's ever done during this time. And she said, it made me cry when I read it. And I just feel like, just thank you, you know? And so I don't think that everybody would pick up on that even, you know, that, that just the, so many hits all at once would hurt that bad. Um, and, you know, just pick yourself up, self up by the bootstraps and move on, you know, <laughs> because that's what I grew up with. Um, but that, and just, I feel a, a responsibility too to speak out that, you know, how can my white privilege, because I have it, you know, do I feel obligated to, um, because I have this white privilege to do something about it. I really don't know. I haven't to the place where I know what I'm supposed to do, but I do know that um, it's important to me to not contribute to racism the best that I can um, and to try to help educate other white people about the fact that there's other perspectives out there, you know, awareness and I'm still struggling through that one myself. I don't sure, sure. Do that. try to be a change maker. Um, what does that look like? I don't know. Talking to you is one thing. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to uh, the church was certainly another thing and um, just calling it out when I can, I guess. And, you know, as in the Bible would say gently. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. The hammer doesn't always work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think making social change making social change comes easier to some than others. Uh, I think you, you and I were talking before we started recording about how neither one of us is naturally a super outgoing person. Um, which, I, you know, I <laughs> on the whole, I'd rather sit at home than go out and do stuff. Um, 
And it, you know, I, I was on the fence about that. And then I married like Mrs. Super introvert. So she kind of drags me down in that respect. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I like, I don't know the answer to that either. Um, some people, some people are really good with people and I am not necessarily one of them. So, um, <laughs> Um, I can relate to that, but I married an extrovert. <laughs> and so he kind of puts me in my out of my comfort zone every once in a while. And then I had a son. You just, I don't know if you have kids yet, but they're probably destined to be introverts. But I, I got a very extroverted son. And so he sort of forces me. In. <laughs> 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 yeah. I don't know. I have, I have two young daughters. They're, they're five and seven. Um, so you know, they only sort of have personalities, but um, they both they both seem extremely extroverted to me, which is interesting. Um, they did not handle lockdown well. Yeah, <laughs> but not. <laughs> they are they are back in school now. They're doing in person school at the moment, um, and so far it hasn't shut down. So, <laughs> Finger, fingers crossed for the sake of their mental health, at least. Um, all right. Well, let me ask you this. Um, aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? Ooh, that's hard. I think that, um, you know, it doesn't make everything that you believe wrong. <laughs> Just because you changed your mind about something doesn't mean that you're wrong about everything. I think that we're constantly learning and we we do the best we can with what we know right now and with what, you know, experiences we have. And it's okay to grow and grow every day. And I think changing our mind is more growth than it is being wrong. So don't be afraid to explore other perspectives, learn new information and to grow because that's, oh, that's living, I think. (laughs) Cool. All right. Well, I have three final questions I ask all my guests, um, kind of quasi-philosophical questions, try to poke at these uh, questions of ontology, epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, Because to change your mind about anything, you have to at least have a conception of both, I think. Um, So first of all, Lacey, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? See, these are like deep, deep questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, certainly I think everybody has an identity, but you have to find it yourself. You know, you have to, I don't know, like define it yourself. Me, I know that I've subscribed to other people, like trying to figure out who I am by looking at other people, you know. Okay, who am I as compared to this person and by looking at this person and by where I came from or whatever. I think that's where I was, um, you know, in middle school, like just trying to figure out where I fit. Um, and <clears throat> so for me, I've really found my identity in uh, my relationship with Christ. Uh, I am who Christ says I am. You know, he created me for a purpose and um, uniquely made me. And so I am who he says I am. And I find glimpses of that by reading his truth in the Bible. And so as I learn about what God says about me, not what the world says about me, not how I compare to other people, not, you know, what degree I earn, how smart I am, you know, that sort of thing. Not because I'm an introvert, but, you know, I am who God says I am. And that's provided me a lot of strength and uh, comfort that, you know, in that. Um, what would you say human nature is? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Human nature. Well, um, I think that's hard because we are, we're all connected. I think, you know, our humanness, there's a lot of ways people think about that, but you know, I think we're all creations um, of God. And so we do share that fabric, that underlying fabric. And regardless of how we look, you know, what we believe, any of that kind of stuff, there is some element of connectedness that makes us all human. And we're all sinners, you know, (laughs) like, I think we often, we think politically, 
way we think, you know, different beliefs people have and so forth, that um, it somehow makes my idea better than your idea or whatever. But right down to it, we're all human, we're all connected. And um, because of that, you know, we kind of share um, the, the, I, I guess my prosperity or lack of prosperity affects your prosperity and your, or your lack of prosperity. You know, that idea of community, like it's better if we all are better. And um, so I wish that we could come to that as a nation and as a society and as a world, but um, we're all broken too. <laughs> so darn it, our brokenness sometimes wins out. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, and finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? How, how do you know when you found truth? What do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that that really goes back to, again, my relationship with Christ. And, you know, my my truth is him. He is the way, the truth, and the light. And so that's kind of where I, I look to for the truth. And so, you know, information comes at you all over, especially in this world of having information right at our fingertips all the time. Um couldn't be more uh, true now that we really need to have a, that compass or that thing to come back to to say, what is truth? And for me, that is um, God. And the Bible is a piece of that and the Holy Spirit and taking information in. And um, especially when you think of um, conversations with people and different perspectives is really running that through my my Holy Spirit inside of me saying, God, you know, help me have discernment, see this through you. Um, so that's my truth. But <laughs> all right. Well, Lacey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, before we go, do you have anything you want to plug? A Twitter, anything else? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I plug if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you know reach out, <laughs> take that leap. <laughs> That's my testimony. That's my plug. No one. All right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been changed my mind with Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or go to my website, LukeTHarrington.com. I will see you next time. Forty acres and a mule. Aside from being the name of Spike Lee's film production company, that was a legend of sorts about what happened at the end of the Civil War. Um, Supposedly, the American government had promised freed slaves 40 acres and a mule to get started and then reneged on that promise uh, the first second they could. Now, strictly speaking, the legend isn't quite true. Um, If you want to get technical, (laughs) what actually happened was um, General William Tecumseh Sherman, who famously waged, quote-unquote, total war, i.e. the scorched-earth policy of just destroying everything he found, um, when he marched eastward across the confederate states he um well as we just said he slashed and burned everything he found he burned atlanta to the ground among other cities um and you know what 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 he would also do uh was free the slaves he came across um and well (laughs) if you're a newly freed slave freed by this general who's destroying everything in his path well what are you going to do right Um, You start following him um, because what else can you do, right? So as a stopgap measure (laughs) to uh, prevent these slaves from just following his army and taking all his provisions, um, General Sherman would, you know, he would set these slaves up with 40 acres and a mule. Um, Now, as soon as the Civil War was over, as soon as the Confederate States surrendered, um, these 40 acres were 
taken back from everyone they had been given to. Um, Abraham Lincoln, for all his good points, was a little more interested in reconciling the nation than he was in economic justice for freed slaves. So, (laughs) essentially, most white landowners got to keep their land, and for that matter, their mules. Um, So, as we've said, the 40 acres and a mule thing was never official government policy, but the fact that it has become so iconic, just the phrase itself, really ought to show you how vital real estate is in personal freedom and autonomy. Um, When you're a freed slave, if you're a slave and someone says, hey, poof, you're free, like, what do you do? Where do you go? You don't own anything. You don't, you suddenly don't have a place to live. You probably technically don't even have the cl- own the clothes on your back. Um, like that's not an exaggeration. Um, and if you don't own anything, how can you earn a living for yourself? Like you can talk about people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, but first you got to have bootstraps. Um, And without the 40 acres, without the mule, what are the bootstraps there? And not only were freed slaves not given real estate, they were denied the opportunity to even purchase real estate in nearly every part of the country. Um, Redlining was real. Um, These policies that prevented uh, black, black Americans from owning any property anywhere. And of course, that's to say nothing of the systems of terror that kept black people in check by punishing them for even the slightest amount of success, um, lynchings, the KKK, etc. Um, so there's a lot to talk about there. But I was really struck by what Lacey said about real estate, about how You know, her parents might not have been able to make money at farming, but the fact that they owned their property meant everything to their continued success and her success. Um, I am not the best person in the world when it comes to handling money. Um, There has been more than one time in my adult life where I realized there was nothing left in the bank and I had bills to pay. But fortunately for me, I have parents and in-laws who have been able to build up wealth over generations and were able to bail me out. Um, And part of the way, a lot of the way those generations were able to build up wealth was that they were able to invest in real estate and own property And I had nothing to do with that, right? Like I would be screwed if it weren't for that. Um, And yeah, that's white privilege, right? Like up until very, very recently, black people, non-white people were systematically denied the ability to own property. Um, Those legal barriers are no longer in place, but there are still a lot of de facto barriers um, by people who just don't want black people in their neighborhoods and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and that's real, right? Like, it's, there's a reason they call it real estate, you know? One of the things certain people harp on when it comes to economic inequality between the races is uh, gentrification. You know, this new trend over the last 20 years or so of rich, generally white people falling in love with poor, generally non-white neighborhoods in cities moving in and, you know, raising the rent, basically, um, raising property values just by, uh, being there, which is a whole other thing, um, and making it so that the people who have lived in this neighborhood for generations can no longer afford their rent. But of course, if you own 
your home, rising property values are not a bad thing for you. That's, um, that's a chance to cash in, right? If, if you don't want to live there anymore, you sell your house and you make a tidy profit. Um, and that's just one example, right, of how important real estate can be to building a financial foundation. Um, anyway, the point is that we as a nation have made it incredibly easy for white people to purchase land and therefore to build wealth generation to generation. And we've made it incredibly difficult, if not downright impossible, for people of color to do the same thing. And that's just historical fact, right? Like black people came over here as property. <laughs> they couldn't, couldn't own property. Um, and this continued well into the 20th century, the GI Bill that allowed returning World War II vets to um, purchase real estate at low cost mostly didn't apply to black returning vets who, you know, had fought just as bravely as their, uh, their white compatriots. Um, and of course, as we've said, real estate is just one example of this, but you can really see it there that the system has not been equal for a very, very long time. And as long as inheritance is a thing, um, which I guess most people think it should be. Um, there's no clear mechanism for it to equalize itself. Um, I feel like a lot of people of a certain political persuasion want to imagine that at some point in the past, someone fired a gun and said, okay, go, everybody is equal now. Um, but that just never happened. The refrain on the right that I've heard for the last 20 years over and over again is that we believe in equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes. But I don't understand how you meaningfully distinguish an opportunity from an outcome. Where's the line between opportunity and outcome? Your parents' quote-unquote outcome becomes your own opportunity. Right. Like there's no meaningful sense in which like a kid growing up in a trailer park outside of Kansas City has an equal opportunity to a kid born into a, a trust fund family in Connecticut. Right. Like you can romanticize it all you want, but ultimately there's no difference. There's no line between outcome and opportunity. And until we stop pretending there is, like, I just don't have a lot of hope for the future of this nation. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, Black Lives Matter, you know. If you like what I'm doing with this show, um, please take a second to rate it, review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Um Every little five-star review helps. It doesn't even have to be a review. Just click that five stars. Click four stars. I don't care. If you hate my show, click one star. It'll fill me with spite and motivate me to try even harder to burn down your house. I mean, to uh, make my show good. Um, if you want to support me financially, I do have a Ko-Fi, which is a little place you can just throw me three bucks and buy me a coffee. It's ko-fi dot com slash changed my mind. Um, if you don't want to do that, here's a better idea. You can buy my book. It is out now. Um, has been for a few weeks. I am getting some good reader feedback. Most people seem to like it. I don't know if you will. I make no promises, but you might. It's called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed, uh, put out by a Christian publisher, written with a general audience in mind, basically written for anyone who wants to learn more about the Bible. Um, there's a lot of strange stuff in the Bible. This is just me presenting it in bite-sized, humorous chunks that anybody can enjoy with copious footnotes for anyone who wants to dig deeper into the scholarship that has been done 
on this fascinating ancient text. Um, so yeah, that is available wherever fine to pretty good books are sold. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local independent bookstore, which if they are still open, good on them because times are hard these days for uh, local stores. For everything else, go to my website, luketharrington.com. I want to thank Jonathan Clausen for editing the show. That guy rules. I want to thank Lacey for coming on the show. Thank you, Lacey. You're the best. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the show. Please uh, check out their other podcasts, Faith and Other Oddities and The Commentarians. And finally, I want to thank you for listening to Changed My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. <laughs>